The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au I we'll invite you to take your Bibles again, the book of Acts and chapter 1. There is a green colored uh, sermon note sheet in your, your bulletin there. I'll give a quick explanation as to why it looks like there's two titles for the message. The one at the very top is a little smaller and shrunken down. The one below it's a bit bigger. Uh, very simply, I had one title in mind, but then as after I'd finished printing all the bulletins, a better title came to mind. I thought, well, I like that one better. So rather than just make it confusing, like I am right now, I'll put two titles. So the title of the message really is God Has Spoken. Are we listening? Let's read together. And we're going to read from verse number 12 of Acts chapter 1 to verse number 26 to get the full context of the text of Scripture. And the word of God says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this Ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it, was, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their language Akeldama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of the Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and that there be no, plan, no one to dwell in it. And he said, let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's ask for God's blessing again, shall we? Loving Father, as we come again with your word open before us. We recognize and we affirm that you have spoken through your scriptures. And Father, we cry out that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would speak to every single heart in this room. 
Father, we pray that we would have ears to hear, hearts to receive the word, and Father, the strength to put it into action. Father, we ask you for these things. We ask you for your help and your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. The disciples have returned to the upper room in obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord has come and chosen 12 disciples or apostles to be his authorized spokesmen and representatives and to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Our Lord Jesus finished his earthly ministry. He suffered and bled and died and rose again. And Christ has promised to pour out his Holy Spirit in order to continue his ministry through the Spirit and by the disciples. Jesus has ordered his disciples to return to Jerusalem and wait there for the Holy Spirit. He's also promised them through the angels that he would return again. And the disciples have the presence of the Spirit of God working among them, not in them yet, but certainly working among them as they await the Holy Spirit's coming. The disciples are united in their devotion to the Lord in prayer. I love what that word devotion means, a persistent or obstinate persistence. They simply would not let go of the Lord in prayer. And as they're praying, God speaks to them through his word concerning Jesus, or Judas, sorry. It is necessary, is a literal reading of that verse number 16. It is necessary for God's word to be fulfilled. What is the message for us from this text? Is God merely resolving the one-member deficiency among the twelve disciples since Judas is gone? Is the text of Scripture simply a historical record of what happened in those days? Or is there a message from God, from this text, relevant for us for today? And I believe, and I think I'm not alone, when I say I'm convinced even that God still speaks to us today, 2019, with a message from his inspired written word to us. Luke is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is using Luke to point out to his readers both then and now two fundamental truths. The importance of devotion to God in prayer and the importance of preaching, teaching, and applying the Word of God to all people in all ages. I've come across some people in my time who like the idea that the church today has got it all wrong, that this idea of coming together into a lecture hall and hearing somebody preach the Word of God, it's all a modern contrivance, and really what we need to do is go back to the way the church did it in the first century. And I read a text like this in Acts 1 and Acts 2, and you know what I find? Peter stands up in Acts 1 and reads the Scriptures and explains them and applies them. And then Acts 2, the Spirit is poured out in power. They go rushing out in the streets, and they're speaking the Gospel. And what does Peter do? He stands up, he opens the Scriptures, he reads them, and he applies them to the situation. At the end of that whole scene in Acts chapter 2, what does it say? The disciples or sorry, the new believers, they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to prayer, to fellowship, and to breaking of bread. So the, the written and the spoken word of God is all through there. The word of God, read, explained, and expounded, is written all through the early church. 
the two fundamental truths that Luke is getting across to us as he tells us the story is their devotion to prayer and also their submission to the Word of God. Now we remember, no, sorry, obviously, uh, these aren't the only two things that are important functions for the church. Obviously, we have the baptism of believers. We have the celebration of the Lord's table. We have fellowship and evangelism and so on. But the two critical functions that must happen in every church for a relationship between God and people to exist is devotion to prayer and the hearing and the submission to the word of God. Now, remember, the disciples are awaiting the Holy Spirit's being poured out. It would bring the greatest revival in biblical history. A genuine biblical revival throughout biblical history usually is preceded by two things. A crying out to God in prayer by the people of God and a renewed attention and submission to God's word. For example, if you go to the book of Judges in chapter 6, what do you find there? The people are sitting against God. They turn away from worshiping and serving the one true God. And so God delivers them into the hands of their enemies. The people are burdened and weighed down by the oppression of their enemies. And they cry out to God in prayer for deliverance. And what's the first thing God does? He raises up and he sends an unnamed, unknown prophet who stands up and says, Thus says the Lord to you. God always brings revival when there is a poured out. I shouldn't say always. God often brings revival when there is a concerted effort and devotion in prayer and a renewed preaching and teaching of the Word of God. So the message for us today is this. God has spoken. Or I can even add, God still speaks, but are we listening? Are we listening? First of all, I want you to notice from the text that the author of Scripture is God the Holy Spirit. If you look down there in verse number 16, you see that Peter stands up and says, The Scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke. Who wrote the Bible? How do we know? What makes this book so fundamentally different from other religious books from other faiths? God's Word, the Bible, is authored by God Himself. I want you to know this morning, if you're new to the Christian faith, maybe this is the first time you've ever been in a church service, I want you to know on the authority of the Bible that God is a personal, relational God. God communicates His mind, His will, and His words in the Scriptures to His creatures. Praise God He didn't just create us and mold us and form us and just kind of push us off into space and step back and watch impartial and impassive to whatever unfolded. No, God intimately is involved in His creation. He speaks to us. The Bible says in Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. The Holy Spirit is that person of the Godhead which God revealed Himself, by which God revealed Himself, apart from when Christ came and spoke Himself. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. The Spirit of God is that person which communicates to us the mind and the will of God. The Bible also says in 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God 
and is profitable for teaching, reproof, and correction, and so on. It's breathed out. It is God's Spirit speaking through men. Stop for a second and consider the immense grace of God that He communicated Himself to His creatures. God spoke to us. I was reading this passage over and over, thinking about what the message should be and and praying and seeking God's wisdom. And that verse just stuck out in my mind that the Holy Spirit spoke. God communicated Himself to us. God does not desire that we know Him. God desires that we are in a relationship with the living God. He's interested in you and in your life. God is not so separated, not so remote as to have no interest in us. God desires that we have the greatest joy in all of life. And he told us exactly how it is that we may have such joy. By trusting in him and living to glorify him and reading his word and discerning and knowing who he is through his word. It's like those love letters you get from your wife. Or I guess we don't do love letters anymore. We do love texts or that sort of thing. Well, you got to be careful in the address part of a love text. I sent a love note to my wife on a text, and I got a phone call from my cousin saying, no, not ever. And I, what are you talking about? He said, you just sent me a text. I said, no, didn't I send it to Heather? I thought, oh, wait a minute. And so it was a little awkward around my cousin for a couple of days. But you know, God spoke to us, and he gave us a 66-book Love letter, 1,100 pages, unfolding himself, explaining himself, revealing himself, telling us what he desires and needs from our life. What he desires from us, that we not just may glorify him, but that in glorifying him, we will enjoy the greatest pleasure that can ever be known. I don't know about you, but the older I get, and I'm not as old as many of you, I'll I'll admit that. But the older I get, the more I'm looking forward to this life being over. What I can see fading away and what I can't see with my eyes yet, the living Lord Jesus Christ, and being face to face with Him and knowing pleasures beyond any imagination. The Bible actually says that in Psalm 16. God communicated Himself to us. God in grace and in kindness and favor revealed Himself to us. God revealed His ways to His people. He revealed His plans and His purposes. He revealed something of the infinite nature of the Trinity. You know what I love about heaven? We will never ever for all of eternity fully grasp and comprehend the magnitude of the grace of God and the infinite infinite lists, if you like, of the nature of His person. No matter how much we get to know of God as eternity passes on, there'll be still yet an unknown amount more. And God in grace put together this book spoken through men that we might know God. So my question to you this morning as we move on is this, do you know the Lord? Do you know what it means to have a relationship with the living God? God revealed something of His infinite nature, His trinity. He also warned us of the failure to heed His words. He also promised us rich rewards that we would receive upon heeding and obeying His commands. The Bible says that God has spoken. Brothers and sisters, are we listening? What place does this book have in your life? I want you to notice, secondly, 
the writers and communicators of Scripture are mere men. Notice what he says in the same verse. The Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. God the Holy Spirit speaks and he moves men to speak and to write. In fact, Jeremiah the prophet says this, Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. In the book of 2 Peter, verse chapter 1 and verse 21, Peter says, Men spoke from God as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God moved and inspired and laid on people's hearts and minds, men's hearts and minds, the things that he wanted them to write. God put words in men's mouths by the Holy Spirit, and they physically spoke them. God also commanded men to write the word of God that he gave them. In Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 8, the Bible says, And now, go, write it before them on a tablet, and inscribe it in a book, that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. God's word will abide forever. I think the Bible says, I'm actually I'm sure it says, heaven and earth may pass away, but my will, my word will stand forever. Isaiah wrote those words, and as he was writing them down, they would never be unwritten. They'd never be wiped out, erased, or forgotten. They will stand forever. In Jeremiah 30 and verse 2, the Bible says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. Now here's the problem. God is holy other than man. He is nothing like us. He is holy. We're not. He's absolutely sinless. We're sinful. He's infinite. We're finite. You can go on and on. The list of the ways that God is different. So how can God speak in such a way that we can hear and understand? John Calvin used a phrase. He said, God speaks like baby talk. You ever watch parents with a new kid? You're going to have fun in a couple of months when the little one's born. Parents a little baby. Oh, come to daddy. And they're all goo goo gaga. And they're talking this ridiculous sing-song little voice. And the, the baby sort of looks up and they all get all bright-eyed and grin because daddy is communicating with them. And we use baby talk to talk to little ones. But think about God and his grace. The majesty of the Word of God is God's baby talk as He speaks to us and communicates His mind to us. God intervened and moved men to write. God intruded and invaded the world in which He had placed us as His creation. God who communicates within the Trinity without the need for physical language and voice and hearing. He spoke to us by moving and inspiring men to speak and write. And you know the grace of God? He didn't do it so that the men were like robots. Men wrote with their own vocabulary, their own style. They wrote as God moved them to respond to a situation, to lift up and worship God. And even at times they wrote in obedience to a direct command of God. But God did it in such a way that they used their own language and style and vocabulary. My son Cameron's learning Greek in Bible school. And we were talking, driving around yesterday. I said, yo, you love Greek, especially John and Mark. Because it's like, it's the most simple, you know, like, uh, you know, read a book as a kid, you know, see, dick, run, see, John, chase, dick, see, John, cat. You know, the, the simple phrases and sentences. That's John and Mark. But you get to Hebrews and, and uh, I think it's First and Second Peter. The, the Hebrew or the Greek story goes way up. It's the style is so high. In fact, you look at those two writers and go, they're two totally different men. 
writing in their own style and their own vocabulary, and yet God moved them both to write. Now we know that God is finished with the authoring and writing of Scripture. God's Word, the canon of Scripture, is complete, closed, and finished. But God is still active in the proclamation of that written Word. God gave gifts to the church, or to men, to communicate His Word. Notice that Peter stood up in verse number 15. In Ephesians 4, 11, we were there about a year ago, uh, we saw there how Christ gave gifts to the church. There were apostles and evangelists and prophets and pastors and teachers, men that God raised up with the gift to either speak Scripture, in the case of the apostles, that's why that's finished, and to preach it, in the case of the, the prophets, and to preach it and explain it, in the case of pastors, teachers, and the evangelists, they go out and preach the gospel message to whoever will listen. God raises up still men to speak His Word, to communicate His Word. And the message they have is not a new message. It's the same message that God has been speaking. There is no new Scripture. Don't let anybody try and tell you that. There is even a group in Southern California, they call themselves the New Apostolic something or other. And they believe that they are now writing the last chapter of the Bible. It's not true. It's blasphemous. It's wrong. The Bible is complete and finished, and the message we proclaim and we speak is the message that God has given us in His Word. God raises up men to read, preach, teach, explain, and apply Scripture. But listen, it's never about the man God raises up. It is about God and His Word. I was listening to a little biography this week of one of my favorite preachers. as a fellow named Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he was known as the Little Welshman. He was, I'm guessing he was quite short. I don't know. I've never seen any way to compare how tall he was, but he was a little man. If you put his uh, recordings on, you can get them on the Internet, and you listen. He's got a voice like thunder. And as he starts to preach, his voice just builds and rolls like rolling thunder. At the end of the message, you're just kind of you're sort of sitting back. It's so powerful. And he was so concerned that people would only remember Martin Lloyd-Jones that he used to pray and say as he began his sermon, forget about the little Welshman. Listen for the voice of God. And brothers and sisters, I pray the same thing, that you'll forget about the huge Canadian and listen and hear the voice. Of, I'm nothing like Martin Lloyd-Jones. But my prayer is that you, you heard me pray it in the beginning of sermon. Lord, my voice falls silent at the edge of the pulpit right here. And the voice of the living God would speak in the hearts and minds and souls of men. They'll forget who I am, but remember who he is and what he has said. Living God. What are these men to do whom God raises up? The word of God must be read in the churches. Notice in verse 20, Peter quotes scripture, for it is written. In 1 Timothy 4.13, we read a bit earlier, uh, Peter, or Timothy says to Paul, no, Paul says to Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. The word of God must secondly be preached and taught in the churches. It must be proclaimed with the voice of a herald. If you look over to Acts chapter 2 and verse 14, you see that Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and he proclaimed the word of God. It must be preached and it must be taught. 
Thirdly, the word of God must be explained in the churches. If you read through verses 16 and 17 and then verse 21, 22 and so on, you'll see that Peter is actually explaining what's happened. He's explaining the situation. He's bringing the word of God to bear on that situation. And he's explaining the outcome and what must now happen beyond that. So the word of God must be read, number one. Number two, it must be preached and taught. Number three, it must be explained. Number four, it must be applied. He applies it and said, this is how we're going to put this scripture to work in our lives. We don't just read scripture for the sake of reading scripture. We read it to apply it to our lives because that is what God is doing. He is speaking to us and instructing us from his word how we are to live. Also, one more thing. Notice, fifthly, the applied message from Scripture must be prayed over. Look what he says right down in verses 24 and 25. They bring these two men forward, Joseph called Barsabbas and Justice and Matthias, and they all gather around. And I'm thinking they probably put their hands on these two men and they begin to pray. Lord, you know which one you have chosen. And they cried out for God in, to God in prayer about the decision they were about to make. Let me apply that like this. Brothers and sisters, when was the last time that we went home on a Sunday morning or a Sunday afternoon and we began to cry out to God in prayer for the message of the Word of God as God has spoken it through the preaching of the Word of God, through Sunday school, through the ladies' studies, through the men's studies, that we cry out that God would bring forth fruit from the preaching of the Word of His God and the teaching of the Word of His God in the ministry of this church. It isn't enough to come and sit and listen and go home. We come and we sit and we listen and we pray that God would speak those words and apply them into our hearts and they would bring forth fruit in the way that we live out our lives. What a gracious, kind, and God that we have. And he still, he still speaks to us today. Listen, the Bible makes it clear. God has spoken. He spoke through His Holy Spirit. He spoke through Scripture as mere men wrote it. He still speaks only from Scripture by mere men as He raised them up. God has spoken, brothers and sisters. But again, the question has to be asked. Are we listening? No, I'm serious. Are you listening? Or do you just come each Sunday morning and sit and kind of tune out you can get a phone so small now you can sit there and play a game on your phone and look sort of interested. I'll tell you, when I was a teenager, I didn't want much because I knew God was convicting me about sin I was engaged in. I found a little trick. I used to watch the preacher's head about a, a foot above his head. And I'd sit there and I'd be staring at him. And everybody think, oh, he's listening to the preacher. No, I was. And I was watching the spot above his head so it looked like I was doing it. And I fooled everybody in the room but one. God. And he got a hold of me in a way that I'll never forget. Listen, the Word of God in front of you, the Word of God on your phones, the Word of God on your, your laptops and tablets and computers, and even in the old-fashioned book, it's speaking. But brothers and sisters, are we listening to what it says? The third thing I want you to notice about the character of Scripture is it's absolutely sure. Notice in verse 16, the literal translation of that phrase there is, it is necessary for Scripture to be fulfilled. 
And the necessity comes from its divine authorship. Since it is God who spoke his word, it must be fulfilled. God is not a man that he can lie. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He cannot lie. If God promised, he has bound himself under the oath of his character that he will not, he cannot lie. His word must be fulfilled. I want you to know what sort of book this is. So take your Bibles, flip over in your Bibles to Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is a great old psalm that speaks about the character of Scripture. And as you're finding your place, I'll just point out to you that the psalmist uses a number of different words, and they are like synonyms to describe the Word of God. It talks about the law and the testimony and the precepts and the commandments. I know you can unpack. There is very slight differences in the meaning, but for now we'll take it as simply referring to the Word of God. I want you to notice a couple of things here. First of all, the word in verse 7, he says, The law of the Lord is perfect. It's perfect. It's complete. It's without defect. It's without blemish. It's whole. It's sound. It's blameless. Everything we need to live and work and function and counsel and encourage and teach and rebuke and correct is right here. God who created us and knows every intricate part of all of the workings of our hearts, our souls, our minds has given us this book that we might know how to live. His word is absolutely perfect. It's necessary for Scripture to be fulfilled because it is perfect. Notice in verse 7 also, he says, the testimony of the Lord is sure. It's sure. It's trustworthy. It's stayed upon. It's rested and leaned upon. I built this pulpit, right? Some of you know that. So I don't put a whole lot of weight on it in case it sort of like does a folding deck of cards and I go flying forward. I don't want to lean too much weight on this. But the Word of God I can lean on with all my weight of all of my life because it is absolutely sure. It's sound. I don't know who built this platform up here. I'm hoping and praying that one day I don't just suddenly drop eight inches as the thing gives away under my considerable bulk. Right? It's possible. But I know for certain that the Word of God is sure it's sound. It can be leaned upon. You can rest your future on what this book says. You can trust the words of the living God. They're absolutely sure. They're absolutely pure. The Gospel will not let you down, brother and sister. To hear the message to come and believe the Lord Jesus Christ, to repent of sin and have forgiveness of sin a new life in Christ, you can rest absolutely sure that God will not let you down. He will give you what He promises. It is His Word, and it based on His very character, He cannot lie. His Word is sure. Psalm 19 and verse 8, notice He says, it is right. I was reading that, and the, the meaning of the word means straight, right, level upright, smooth, and straight. And being a carpenter, all I could think of was a piece of timber. A piece of timber that's been planed and straightened and cut to the exact length. It's a perfectly square piece. And when I was a young apprentice, working building houses, they said, you know, there's several rules you have to have as a carpenter. It has to be straight when you cut it. It has to be smooth. It can't be a whole wobbly cut. When you put the walls up, they have to be plumb, straight up and down. You can't have the walls all leaning over because the house looks really messy when you're finished. You can't have the floors running downhill. They've got to be flat. 
and straight and plumb and square and true. And you know what? All of those words are are sort of summed up in that word, it is right. It's straight. It's smooth. There's no deviations. We'd pick up a piece of timber and look at it and say, well, there's a knot here and there's a bit of weighing over here and there's a crack over here. And those were called deviations or deformities in the wood. When you pick up the Word of God, the Bible says it's right. It's absolutely without defect or deformed. It's dependable. You can take it to the bank if you like. It's absolutely sure. It is necessary for Scripture to be fulfilled because it's right. And the Bible also says in verse 8, it's pure. It has no faults. It's clean and cleansing. Isn't that neat? The purity of the Word of God is pure in itself, but it has a cleansing effect. That's amazing if you think about that. Reading the Word of God, soaking up Scripture, asking the Spirit of God to take those words and apply them to your heart. It has a cleansing effect. It will highlight to you sins that need to be confessed and forsaken. It will show you how you need to walk in order to walk in a righteous and a holy way. The Word of God is pure. There's so many more we can look at, but we'll just leave it there. God has spoken. God Himself spoke through His Holy Spirit in verse 16. God wrote Scripture through mere men. God has spoken, and the nature of His words are absolutely sure. You can trust God's words in faith's certainty that He will not let you down. God has spoken the words of absolute certainty, but the question is, brothers and sisters, I'll ask it again, are we listening to what it says? See, the danger is we can get so revered of the Word of God that we lift it up and we enjoy it and we delight in it and we say, what a wonderful thing, and we prize it and we treasure it, but we never listen to it. I might have told you this story before about a businessman who goes away on a trip and gets all of his men together and he says, I'm going to give you some instructions about how to run the business. And they say, okay. And so he gives them a collection of instructions and detailed uh, standard operating procedure, I think they call it. And every once in a while, he sends a letter from a far-off place and says, you better make sure you do this, you better make sure you do that, and be careful you don't do this. And then one day he comes back to the, the, the business, and he walks up, and the grass is overgrown in the front, and the windows are broken, and there's kind of stuff hanging everywhere, and it's just a real mess. And he kind of pushes the door open. There's a big pile of mail behind the door, and he pushes it past and he looks inside, and the secretary is laying down at her desk, and she's sound asleep, and there's dust all, dust all over the place. And she go, he goes in the back, and the workmen are all horsing around. There's unfinished work, and there's, there's stuff that's just in a mess. And he gathers all the company together, and he said, what happened? And he, they said, what do you mean? They said, well, we, I gave you instructions about how you to live the business, how you run this business. What happened? Did you get my instructions? Oh, yes, they said. Absolutely. In fact, we've got it all here in a nice binder. It's all categorized and filed. In fact, we've even got leather-bound editions of all your instructions. And we have letter instruction every Wednesday night. And the businessman said, yeah, but did you do it? Oh, no, no, no. We, you know, we, we got it all covered. We got it here. We got it safe. But no, we didn't ever do it. And see, brothers and sisters, we are... If you look in the world around us, the Christian world, we are among some of the most blessed in the world. We have multiple copies of the Word of God on our shelves. 
We have the Word of God on our phones, our watches. We have our Word of God on bumper stickers and around our nests on little doodads. We have the Word of God everywhere we turn our Christian lives with brothers and sisters. Are we doing what it says? You see, it's no good. I shouldn't say that. It's of partial good to have it, but of ultimate good when we have it and we obey it and put it to use. And I say partial because there will come a day when God will gather us together and he will begin to go through and examine our lives before him. And have we done the things that he has left us to do? And because we know the truth, if we have not obeyed it and lived it out, we will bear the greater judgment because of that. God has spoken, and I want to give you finally the subject of Scripture is our Lord Jesus Christ. This point doesn't come from Acts chapter 1, but it comes a little bit before in the timeline. In Luke 24, verses 25 and 27, Jesus said to the two, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In Romans 1, 2, and 3, the Bible says that God promised through His prophets in Holy Scripture the things concerning His Son, Jesus Christ. The subject of Scripture is our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul makes a connection between the Scriptures and the subject and content of the Gospel being Christ. I want you to take your Bibles and flip over a couple books toward the end. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 7. And Paul connects here the gospel to the scriptures. And listen to what he says. I'll give you a sec to find it. First Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 7, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve, and so on. We'll leave it there. Jesus' death, even the way He died, was according to Scripture. If you go back to Psalm 22, which was written approximately a thousand years before Christ came, even before the crucifixion was invented, you know what you read there? You read in Psalm 22 and verse 17, I can count all my bones. What some people don't know is the scourging was so brutal. When they scourged Jesus back, it would strip the flesh right off of his back and his side, and it would be possible for them to look down and actually see his bones showing through the torn and shredded meat all around the side and back. He could count all his bones. In Psalm 22, verse 14, the Bible says, My bones are out of joint. And it's the psalmist writing a messianic psalm predicting what would happen to Jesus. And what often happened on the cross is the bones were pulled out of joint. Some of you may have seen the movie The Passion where they literally pulled Jesus' shoulder right out of the socket in order to nail it into the spot where the nail is supposed to go in that post. That happened. His bones became dislocated. Not broken, but dislocated at times. Verse 15 of Psalm 22 says, My tongue sticks to my jaws. One of the 
overwhelming difficulties of being on the cross was thirst. The body had gone through massive fluid loss and hung there exposed in the cold air and the nighttime, and like that, it would build a tremendous thirst. And Jesus hanging on the cross at a certain point said, I thirst. And the soldiers took a sponge and a bit of a stick and they soaked it in vinegar. Oh. And they lifted up and Jesus sucked the vinegar off the sponge. Would have made it probably worse. But the Bible predicted a thousand years before they nailed Jesus to cross that he would thirst. The Bible says in Psalm 22, verse 16, they have nailed or they have pierced my hands and feet. Jesus' hands and feet were nailed to the cross. You may not know this, but that wasn't always done. The scourging would create such a massive blood loss that as the victim was tied to the cross, exposed, was unable to free himself, that was enough. And victims sometimes lived for two, three, four, five days on the cross, slowly dying of exhaustion and exposure. But in an added twist of cruelty, they nailed Jesus' hands and feet to the cross. In Psalm 22, verse 18, the Bible says, They divide my garments. And we know the story that when they came to the cross, they stripped Jesus of all of his clothing, and they left him in a heap on the ground. They crucified him, and the soldiers, to kill time, started gambling, rolling dice to see which would get which piece of clothing and which would get the other. They divided my garments. The Bible was absolutely explicit in the details that when Jesus died, his death and the manner of his death was according to Scripture. But not only that, the Bible very clearly describes his burial. In Isaiah 53 and verse 9, the Bible says, His grave was with the wicked, a rich man in his death. And we know that Jesus was crucified between two thieves, one on either side. His grave was with the wicked. And then he was buried in a rich man's tomb. The scripture was fulfilled. When Peter says in Acts chapter 1, it is necessary for the scripture to be fulfilled, he didn't mean just a few bits here, there, and everywhere. He meant all of it. And Jesus said, it's necessary for Scripture to be fulfilled, the things concerning me, and all those predictions and prophecies. You read through Psalm 22 and Isaiah 52 53, and read there all the details of Jesus' death. It's thousand years before he even was born. And the details are so precise. But not only that, the significance of Jesus dying was according to Scripture. In John 1, verse 29, the Bible says that Jesus died to take away the sin of the world. In Galatians 1, verse 4, the Bible says that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. In 1 Peter 2, 24, the Bible says he bore our sins on the cross that we might die to sin but live to righteousness. He wasn't just another Jewish carpenter that died. He was the son of the living God who gave his life that we might be set free from sin, that we might live to God, dead to sin. God's greatest revelation of himself was Christ. Christ came and spoke every word the Father gave him. Christ suffered and died according to the Scriptures. Christ was buried and was raised according to the Scriptures. Christ has ascended and been exalted to God's right hand. And Christ has poured out His Spirit on all flesh, speaking now 
And Christ commands all men everywhere through Scripture to turn away from sin, to have a complete change of heart and mind and life and turn towards God. Why? Because the Scripture had to be fulfilled. God commands us to believe the Gospel, to trust completely in Christ for salvation. God has spoken. And maybe this morning God is speaking to you to me. And you can do this. La, 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 la. Put your hands in your ears. You can force yourself to think about something else. But I'll tell you from personal and sometimes painful experience, you will not drown out the voice of God. When God speaks, His voice can become persistent. And that same devotion that we are to pray with is in a sense the devotion that God speaks and calls to us. God has spoken. Are we listening? It was necessary for the Scripture to be fulfilled regarding Judas. And you see the passage there, what happened, how somebody else took his place. It is necessary for Scripture to be fulfilled which the Spirit spoke by the mouths of mere men concerning believers. You know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. I want to give you some promises as we wrap up. These must be fulfilled. Listen, the Bible says in Philippians 1 verse 6, He who began a good work in you, Christian, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, listen, God will finish the work He began in you. Some of you know uh, that I'm a woodworker. I like to mess around with wood, as you can see. And I love taking my hand planes. I was a, a cabinet maker in a machine shop, like making factory-made cabinets for most of my working career in Canada. Uh, and some on the boats, too. And, but there was something about picking up a piece of wood and setting it in the plane in the bench, tightening the vise up, and picking up a hand woodworking plane, sharpened and tuned, and you start to run your, your hand, the plane across the wood, and every time... Wood goes across the plane, the shaving just peels off. I was watching these fellows on this uh, this woodworking show, and they had this 12-inch wide plane, and they were putting the plane on the wood, and they were drawing it along. It was a Japanese woodworking plane, and the Japanese have perfected this. He peeled off a shaving that was two microns thick. I could take that piece of piece of wood and lay it over my Bible and read it just as if I had, didn't even put it there. It was so thin. I said, "What's the point?" The point is this, every once in a while when you're doing that woodworking, you're using those woodworking tools, you hit a knot. <laughs> and all of a sudden you go, and the thing stops. And then if you're like me and you put a bit of weight into it, you have to trip and fall across the shop because this plane stopped and you went flying. Or sometimes you'd have it, your chisel and you're wailing away with the chisel and it hits a knot and it just like, <clears throat> the thing just won't go and it beds itself. And you know what? The, the, the reason I give that illustration is this. God is working on you like that piece of wood. And sometimes as He works, the plane goes across and the shavings are smooth and sweet and He works away and He makes great progress and the finish that's developing on that piece of freshly planed wood, that Christian, is beautiful. But sometimes as He's planing, He hits a knot 
And God is patient and he will begin to work and he will work and he will work on that knot and he will plane and scrape and chisel and work away until that knot is a beautiful figure in the piece of wood. And listen, Christian, God has promised that he will finish the work he began in you. No matter how much difficulty that work revolves and involves, he will finish it. Don't despair. I know for some of you, you're on the borderline of saying, forget it. I can't do this. I'm going to walk away. Don't walk away. Keep submitting to the sharpened plane, the sharpened chisel of God's Word. Allow the Spirit of God to do the work in you, to shape you and make you into Christ's image. That's what He's doing. And He promised, and when the Scripture says it's necessary for the Scripture to be fulfilled, it includes those promises. He who began a good work will bring it to completion. 2 Corinthians 12.9, this verse was a great treat to me this week. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, Christian, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Christian, listen. God's grace is sufficient for you. You say, why aren't things going the way that I expected I want them to? Listen, God's grace is sufficient for you. To my friend who had her toes amputated and will struggle for months more now to walk properly, God's grace is sufficient for you. Some of you are going through heartaches and troubles and difficulties that I don't know about. I don't know the depth of them. But I want you to know that whatever you're going through, whatever God is taking you through, the Scripture must be fulfilled and His grace is sufficient for you. He will see you through. Don't let go. Don't give up. One other promise. Acts 1, verse 11, right before our passage. The angels are speaking to the men of Galilee and they say, Why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He's coming again. He says, it's been 2,000 years. Where is he? He's coming again. Yeah, but you know, look at the state of the world and look at the state of the church. Look at all these problems and all these messes. It seems like Jesus has gone back to heaven and kind of forgotten about us. What about that? No, the Bible says that Jesus is coming again. It may be before I finish the sentence and it may be next millennia. But he is absolutely surely coming again. The Bible says it. The scripture must be fulfilled. Jesus is speaking to us, but are we listening Are we obeying the commands of Scripture to put off the old man and put on Christ? Are we obeying the commands of Scripture to put off the old sin nature and put on obedience to Him? But listen, I can't stop. I can't finish unless I make one final point. The Scripture must be fulfilled concerning the believer, but it also must be fulfilled concerning those who do not believe the Gospel. Well-known passage in John chapter 3 i read it for you. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, 
Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The Scripture must be fulfilled. What does that mean? If we hear the Gospel and reject it, if we do not repent of sin and do not believe the message of the Gospel, the Scripture must be fulfilled which says that we are condemned already. There will come a day when Jesus will gather all of the nations, all of the the people of every nation of every time period together in front of Him and He will go through and He will separate sheep from goats. And the Scripture will be fulfilled every time a sheep is gathered to His right hand. And the Scripture will be fulfilled every time a goat, an unbeliever, is gathered and pushed to His left. And those who do not believe will be cast into outer darkness. You see, that's a pretty grim way to end a message on Sunday morning. Reality is that God has spoken. Are we listening? God has spoken and He calls us to repent of sin and believe the Gospel. God has spoken He calls us to repent of sin, believe the Gospel, be adopted into God's family, to know the joy of the presence of the Spirit of God in our lives. God has spoken. He has promised that He will be with us. He will never leave us for all of time. God has spoken and He has promised that He would put His Spirit within us to empower us and enable us to live this life and walk this walk until Jesus returns again. He has spoken, He has promised, and the Scripture must be fulfilled. But God has also spoken and said that those who refuse to repent and refuse to believe are lost forever. Brothers and sisters, I'll say it one more time. God has spoken. Are you listening? What will you do about it? I'm going to get uh, Cam and Heather to come up. We're going to sing one more song. It's, uh, it ties with the message so well. It's ancient, of day, ancient days. It goes like this. Holy words long preserved for our walk in this world. They resound with God's own heart. Oh, let the ancient words impart. Words of life and words of hope. Give us strength and help us cope. In this world, wherever we roam, ancient words will guide us home. Ancient words ever true, changing me and changing you. I pray that is true of all of us. Would you stand with me? We'll sing and then we'll pray together. Loving Heavenly Father, we give you thanks again for the gift, the tremendous gift of the Word of God. And Father, we thank You that You spoke. You spoke through Scripture and You spoke as You moved mere men to write and speak Your words. And Father, we give You thanks that You still speak this day from the Scriptures. And Father, we pray that we as a people would be giving heed to Your Word, to recognizing the need to preach it and teach it, to explain it and apply it, but Father, to pray over the Word of God, to pray it into our lives and each other's lives, to pray that it would bear fruit in our lives. Father, we pray that we would be a people who are a people of the Word of God, living out the truths of Scripture. Father, we cry out to You for this church that You would indeed bring revival. Father, those disciples in the upper room with 120 in total were persistently in prayer 
stubbornly refusing to let go of you in prayer, crying out to you that you would bring that promised Holy Spirit. And Father, we rejoice, we give thanks that every single believer who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is filled and sealed with the Spirit at the moment they believe. But Father, we cry out also that you would greatly increase the influence of the Spirit of God in each of our lives, that we would bear the fruit of the Spirit, that you would give us those gifts as necessary, that we might edify and build up the church. Father, we pray for a genuine biblical revival, a great deepening of our love for you, a great deepening of our obedience to your word, Father, a great pouring out of your Spirit as men and women come to know the Lord Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel. Father, it is our desire to see the commission fulfilled in Noble Park. You have planted this church in this community. And Father, we know as we drive around, as we walk around the community, that there are hundreds and even thousands of men and women who do not know the gospel, who do not know Jesus Christ. Father, we pray, we plead with you, O God, that you would send us out into the field, across the street, into Noble Park, to preach the gospel, to tell people that Jesus loved them and died for them, that the wrath of God has been removed, and that he comforts us. Father, we pray that you would do a work amongst us. Father, we thank you for our time together. And now, Lord, as we would take some time to consider the the affairs and the business of this church. We pray, O God, for grace to overrule. We pray, O God, that you would give us a joy as we consider the ministries that have gone on over the last year. And Father, as we look forward and make plans for the ministries for the next year, we pray, O God, that you would lead us and guide us and strengthen us. Father, we pray for unity in this church. We pray, O God, that there would be no division contention. Father, we ask you for hearts that are in love with Christ and in love with each other to communicate freely. Father, we ask you for your blessing in all these things, and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.